Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. We are all worshipers. And that truth rings out in our hearts that we are constantly worshiping something. Every day, every hour, every moment, there is something that we are worshiping. And in our psalm today, as I mentioned earlier, we are going to try to examine the text and then enlarge our view of who God is. Worship is a daily battle. We often worship because we want blessing. We worship because we want something out of it. We get angry over the things we want, but we don't get because those things have been valued too highly. We worship celebrities as we try to model their lifestyle as our own. We worship circumstances, looking at a better paying job or a new car or whatever it may be, fill in the blank, and we worship those things. We worship things. If only I could find someone who understands me in my suffering. If only I could find a spouse that would understand me. We look to other things to satisfy. We look to other things than God. Many, if not most, of these things are probably good things. The things that are good. A new paying job isn't bad. Someone who understands me in my suffering isn't a bad thing. But when that good thing takes place, the place of God, that thing becomes a bad thing. It becomes sin. So I ask you this morning, what are you worshiping? Or more importantly, who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the Lord God Almighty or are you worshiping yourself? Asaph in our psalm today wants us to worship our almighty God. He wants us to worship our almighty God. We find ourselves in the text today, is, our subtext is, to the chief musician, on a stringed instrument, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We don't get much context into this passage today. There's really nothing, no setting that we see that Asaph writes for us. Last week in Psalm 75, it was set to do not destroy. And (laughs) I got to be honest, when I heard that, I really wanted to hear what that tune was. Was it big and loud? But this week, we don't really have much context into what Asaph wrote this to. But in our text today, Asaph wants to see it, show us that we should worship our almighty God. Worship our almighty God. Maybe the PowerPoint isn't working. That's okay. I'll try to make it clear as we go along what the points are for today's sermon. So why are we to worship our almighty God? Why is it so important that we worship the Lord Almighty? Asaph today gives us three reasons why we should worship the Lord God. And then at the end, on our fourth point, we'll see today that it's kind of a summary and a response of how we ought to respond to these three truths. 
So first today, we're going to see that the line of Judah protects his people. Verses 1 through 3. The line of Judah protects his people. Read along with me, starting in verse 1. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow and the shield and sword of battle. Geographically today, we find ourselves in the southeastern Mediterranean Sea. This is where Israel is. This is where Israel lies. And here, Asaph says, this is where God is known. God is known in Judah. His name is great. And then the scope narrows to specifically Jerusalem. In Salem is also his tabernacle, his dwelling places in Zion. So our scope geographically narrows to Israel. It's interesting in verse 1 that Asaph mentions both Judah and Israel because at the time that Asaph would have written this, there wouldn't have been that uh, the difference between Judah and Israel were the same thing. So Pastor Lance noted a couple weeks ago that Asaph could have, reser- uh, could have referred to one of Asaph's descendants. So it's potentially likely that this is a descendant of Asaph after the split of the kingdom. So Asaph says, in Judah, in Israel, God is known. Outside nations look in and see God. They see Yahweh. They've known of his past victories throughout all of Israel's history because they have always been the underdog. Then we see that where he specifically dwells, and that is in his temple, Salem. This name is familiar if you were here when Pastor Lance preached over Genesis because after Abraham rescued his nephew Lot, this guy shows up, Melchizedek, king of Salem. And it's like, who is this guy? He just kind of shows up. But the text says that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. That is the ancient name for Jerusalem. And so whether this is a pre-incarnate Christ or a foreshadowing of Christ, it is showing that Christ, it is foreshadowing that Christ will rule in Jerusalem, that his presence is there. It is foreshadowing Christ's eternal reign in his city, Jerusalem. That is where God dwells. That is where he is. If you notice the phrase dwelling place, and his dwelling place is in Zion. The dwelling place there refers to both a thicket. It's the same word for a thicket later in the Bible and also a den for lions. So the original readers would have read this and they would have been like, it's the lion of Judah. It's a lion protecting his den. God dwells in Jerusalem. That's where he dwells. That's where his temple is. And he is protecting it. He is protecting his dwelling place. So what does this line of Judah do? do? Well, verse 3, it says, There, in Jerusalem, in Salem, he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield of the sword of battle. That is what God does. The line of Judah protects his people. 
Jerusalem is where God broke the flaming arrows. Here is where God broke the shield. Here is where God destroyed the sword. None of man's instruments of death could usurp King Jesus. None of these instruments of death could defeat him. God protected his people. Time after time, Israel was the underdog in battle. Time after time, they were a small portion compared to these large grand armies that came against them. Yet time after time, God protected them as they turned to him. God protected them. Time after time, they were defeated. Yet there were also times in Israel's history when they would not trust God, where they would think, I am strong enough, I am powerful enough to go against the enemies. And they were defeated because they did not trust God. They trusted themselves. But when they trusted in him, they gained victory. This is why he is so great. Because he defended Israel and smote her enemies. He struck them down with his mighty power. When I was a child, I used to play in the woods with my siblings. We'd build forts and entire economies of towns and whatnot. Maybe your kids or you did this when you were younger. But we would build these entire forts, cities almost. They were grand and illustrious to us. But my siblings moved off to college and life continued. And I was like, man, I need to uh, recruit some help. And so we had some neighbor kids that I thought, hey, they might, they'll be good for slaves. <laughs> did I say that out loud? So I enlisted their help. And they were more than happy to build these grand forts. And so my idea was that I was going to build a greater fort than that which my siblings had built. And I was, they, they had entire ecosystems. They had money that they would pay for different sticks and value and whatnot. And it was just this really fun thing to do as a child. But this fort that we were going to build was going to be so grand. We had a workshop. We had each our own town or houses, and we built other houses that people could come. I don't know who would come, but people would come and stay. And the biggest thing of all was that I was going, I planned to build this 20 foot high wall made out of sticks. And I was maybe four foot three. (laughs) So I don't know how that was going to work, but I was the king. I was the king in my castle. I'd built up things around me to protect me that provided me security. But the reality is that with modern warfare or with even ancient warfare, it would have been blown to bits. (laughs) It would have been completely burned. Nothing could have protected me. But how often in our lives do we look to temporary? Do we look to things that are do not provide security, and we look to those things for security. Maybe you're looking for security in your spouse. Maybe you're looking for security in a search for a spouse. You want to raise at your new job because you think that financial security will provide you comfort. Maybe you want a new car or fill in the blank. What are you looking for for security? We are indeed weak people, And we oftentimes look for help in the most pitiful places. 
we look at earthly things, we look at temporary things to provide eternal security. When truly only our God, the line of Judah, can provide security. So we ought to trust him. We have to trust him to protect us. 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us that we are his temple now. The Holy Spirit, if you have trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells in us. We are his temple. So if he protected his dwelling place, Israel, against nation upon nation, how much more will he not protect us? Ephesians 6 reminds us of the armor of God. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of of the guilt within, when we can arm ourselves with the armor of God, remembering aspects of salvation. That's what Ephesians 6 talks about when it's saying the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and the shield of faith. These are all things that refer, these are all different things referring back to our salvation. So when you're tempted, when you're discouraged, we're reminded to look back at God's salvation and to rejoice, to revel in it, to be thankful for his salvation and meditate on the depth of the riches of our sin, or the depth of our sin, but the immense riches of his grace. So remember his salvation. When you are afraid of false accusations, trust that Jesus holds the truth, that he will defend his name in you. When you fear that you have failed or you feel like you can't do anything right, we are to know that we're frail human beings. We will never do anything perfect. We were not created to be independent but rather we were created to be dependent upon him for our daily need. So trust in Jesus' perfection. Stop looking at your own imperfections and look to Jesus. He is only perfect. And often our standard of perfection falls short of what he says. Look to Jesus. When you lack security, look to Jesus as your refuge. Look to him to provide what you need. Look to God as our source of help and take comfort that if you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The Lion of Judah protects his people. God will protect you. Secondly, today we want to see in verses 4 through 6 that the Almighty renders his enemies powerless. The Almighty renders his enemies powerless. Look with me in verse 4. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The Lord is glorious. He is full of light. I love how the New American Standard Bible says it. It, is, it says, you are more resplendent. You are more majestic than the mountains of prey. There's just a pleasant air about that word resplendent has that word splendor. You just have this relief almost saying it. But God, it's a word defining that God's glory shows forth. His glory is dispersed. His glory is his character shining forth. His, he is excellent. 
He is perfect. He is majestic. He is marvelous. Asaph could have just stated that God was glorious and excellent, and we would have been like, yes, he is. But in the text, he draws a contrast. He draws it to the mountains of prey. So what are those? Different Bibles use different translations of glorious mountains or mountains of prey. But whatever it may be, the truth still remains the same. Mountains show a firm, a steadfastness, security. Nothing is able really to level mountains. So that strength, it shows that God is more glorious than even firm, strong mountains. But mountains here also could be referring geographically to the northern mountains in Israel where most of Israel's enemies would come from. So that then incorporates the phrase mountains of prey, talking about Israel's enemies. God is more glorious and excellent than his steadfast enemies, his enemies that are firm, that are strong. And that parallels with verse 5, which says, The stout-hearted were plundered. They sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found use of their hands. God in his glory and his excellence, these stout men, these men of war that have had victory, they were plundered. Their goods were stripped from them. They have sunk into their sleep, and that's a euphemism for death. At God's glory, they were destroyed. They have sunk into their sleep. None of the mighty men have found use of their hands. The literal translation of this is they couldn't find their hands. I wish I had sleeves long enough to show you like, oh, where are my hands? But I can't. (laughs) Weapons are meant to be used by hands. You knock an arrow with your fingers. It takes some element of skill to be able to knock an arrow on a bow. To use a sword, you need to have firm, strong hands to be able to execute a a well-put swing. To use a shield, you must have a hand in order to grip it. I don't know of anybody who has won a victory, like a whole entire army, using just their feet. That's impossible. And Asaph points here to he's saying they couldn't find their hands. They were so dumbfounded by his glory that they couldn't even find use for their hands. At your rebuke, verse 6, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both chariot and horse were cast into a dead sleep. Chariots, horses were the tanks and airplanes of our day back in Asaph's day. That's why Pharaoh's armies were so prevalent in Moses' day because they had such illustrious, such magnificent armies full of chariots and horses that no army could defeat them. No army could subdue them. But at God's rebuke, at just a word from God, these chariots, these horses, these terrors of war are destroyed. They're put down, they're put low. For the excellence of his power far exceeds frail humanity. The instruments of war cannot subdue this king. The Almighty renders his enemies 
powerless. When he said it was finished, he conquered sin and death and Satan at the cross. At his word, Jesus will come again and he will take his children to be home with him. At his word, Satan, though he's already been defeated, he's still running around being evil, doing evil things. At God's word, Satan will be cast into hell with his followers. God's words are mighty because he is mighty. Fainting goats are a blast. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see them in person or to watch a YouTube video, but they're, they're really fun to watch. They may, at some time, if you bend over and there's a goat in there, you most likely get hit over, knocked over. But fainting goats are just this really fun animal that are just fun to watch. Because when they get scared, they tip over. They get stiff, and then they fall over. And I don't know how long it takes for them to recover, but it takes a while. So even though their horns can be used for damage, I don't know, like, if they get stuck in a fence and they can pull the fence apart, (laughs) I don't know. They have, they provide a little bit of danger, but when they faint, they're rendered powerless. There have been times when walking by my neighbor's fainting goats that I've gone, boo, to see what had happened. And I won't tell you what happens. But anyway, They are rendered powerless. They can do no harm. It's a silly illustration, but it pictures a powerful gospel truth that God's enemies are rendered powerless at his words. They've already been defeated at the cross. God has won victory over all his foes at the cross. They're already defeated So when Satan tells you that you are beyond forgiveness, look to the power of the cross. Know that Jesus has paid the debt of your sin in full. Trust him. Trust Jesus. Trust his power at the cross. I'm reminded of the famous lines from the hymn before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward, I look and see him, see Jesus there, who made an end to all my sin. Satan soon will be cast down. So we look to Jesus as he has subdued the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. He has subdued him under his reign. Maybe you are fearing death. You've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. You've had a relative that has passed away that you now are pondering. Life is short. Life is but a breath. We look to the cross. We look to Jesus. And we find comfort that if we have trusted in our Lord Jesus as Savior, that death is a mere exit on the way to eternity with him. Death has lost its sting because Jesus died at the cross. So rejoice. Look to Christ. He has subdued his enemies. When fearing, 
that you are going to lose again in temptation when you're being tempted, as we all are. When we're being tempted, look to Christ. Look to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 reminds us that no temptation has overtaken us, such as is common to man. But God is faithful. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to handle. But with the temptation, because he is powerful, he is able to provide a way of escape. Look to Christ when being tempted. Look to him. He's already defeated sin. We turn to sin because we love it. We turn to sin because we love it. So rather look to Christ. Look to him. Love him. Seek him. He is powerful. He has rendered his enemies powerless. Look to Jesus. Trust in his victory. For the Lord has rendered his enemies powerless. The third reason that we find today for why we should worship the Lord God is because the Lord reigns with justice over all the earth. Verses 7 and 10 through 10. The Lord reigns with justice over all the earth. Look with me at verse 7. You yourself are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? We can almost summarize the previous section with this. That because God has rendered his enemies powerless, that he is to be feared. He is to be feared. And the fear of the Lord looks different for two, in two different ways. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we fear the Lord. It looks like an awe. It looks like a reverence. It's a wonder at his immense power and his grace displayed in Christ at the cross. It is a just complete sheer dumbfoundedness at his goodness. That is what fear looks like for the life of, in the life of a believer. But for those who are not in Christ Jesus, that fear is much like that of a fainting goat. It is sheer terror. It is sheer terror that he is going to judge sin. Verse 8, For you caused judgment to be heard from heaven, and the earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver the oppressed of the earth. The Lord, in this passage, we see him, act, he's aroused to action. He's, he gets up off his throne, and often we think that in our minds. Where is God? Is he on the throne? And Asaph points, he says that God arises to judgment from his, his heavenly kingdom is heard, is almost proclaimed his judgment to earth. And we see why. Why was God invoked to action. It was to deliver the oppressed of the earth, to deliver the downcast. It is in his goodness and in his grace and his kindness that he actually judges. And the only response that I, it's natural for all of us is when we hear of God's judgment, there's kind of this internal just, ah, I don't like that. And that's how it should be. 
That's what God's judgment should invoke in us because it, as a believer, it should stir us to remember what God has done for us, that he poured out his wrath upon sin on Jesus. And for those who are not in Christ Jesus, it provokes a terror because that same wrath is coming to you. And so let that move you. Let God's judgment move you to shake. It's truly disturbing, but it is truly right and just. At first glance, when you look at verse 10, it can be rather confusing. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. What does that mean? What is he doing with wrath? He says, the wrath of men shall praise him. So when I'm angry, should I pray? am I praising God through my anger? No, that's not what Asaph is talking about here. It's the word for gird is to take up upon oneself. Like fastening a sword to the belt, that's the same word. God is able to subdue, the wrath of man is able to subdue wickedness, this wrath of man and he's able to use it for his purposes but don't misunderstand me first john 1 5 reminds us for god is light and in him there is no darkness at all there's god is completely pure he is set apart from evil he is holy no evil can abide in his presence so god does not act or do evil because he is not He is glorious, he's pure, he's excellent. But he's able to use, in his sovereignty, he's able to use even the wrath of man to praise him in the end. Romans 8.28 reminds us that, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. So we see in that verse that God is able to use anything anything for his own purposes, for his own glory. He's able to use suffering. He's even able to use the wrath of man because he reigns eternally. He reigns with justice. He is sovereign over all and he can use these things. The greatest example we see of this is the cross. That an instrument of death, the cross, it was so feared. It was so feared because it was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of torture. That same tree that brought death brings life. God was able to use the cross. God was able to use that wickedness, that evil that happened to Christ. God used it that we might be gaining access to his family through Jesus. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus instead of his children. God is able to use wickedness. He's able to use the wrath of man because the Lord reigns with justice. The Lord reigns over all the earth. This has been a lesson that God has been teaching me, especially this past year, And he began teaching me this lesson about two years ago. I was getting ready. I was 
ending school. I was at a Christian school and I was ending the semester and I wanted to get a job where I could be involved to get to brush shoulders with people who did not know Christ. Because at the time I was at a Christian school, so I was around Christians. I was at here at church. I was, didn't have much interaction with unbelievers or I was at home. So I was burdened that I need to go and find somewhere where I can plug in and have natural access to people who do not know Christ. And I tell you this so that you'll see that this is a good thing. We'd all agree that this is a good thing that God would want a believer to do. So I prayed and prayed and prayed for months about God opening doors. And as summer was coming, as summer was coming, I was frustrated. I was concerned because like nothing, no doors were opening. I was angry. I was frustrated because I'm like, this is a good thing, God. Why aren't you giving this? Why isn't this happening? And when I would step out and do try to get a job and, and do it in my own timing and in my own will and in my own way, I would get even more frustrated because it wasn't happening. So I would ask God, God, why this good thing that I want? Why am I not getting it? This good thing, why aren't you allowing it? This is for you. Why? Someone gently reminded me that God is not only sovereign over the situation, that is the eternal truth that he is sovereign, he reigns over all the earth, but we can look at that and be like, that's a, yes, he does, but we can forget how to internalize that, to make that personal. So somebody reminded me that God was not only sovereign, but that he was also good too. That personalized his sovereignty in my life so that, and this is the phrase that vividly is pictured in my mind, is that if God hasn't provided your need yet, is because he has something better for you. And so that truth rings out in my mind, and I can say now that I waited for the Lord's timing. I repented of being angry at him, and I just waited, and I waited for his op- doors o- to open, and they opened, and God has been faithful through all of that. So our interpretation of good sometimes isn't actually the best. It ought to be aligned with what Christ would have for us, of what God would have in his sovereign plan. So what things are you going through right now that you can trust God in the circumstances, in the trenches of life? Maybe you aren't getting the desired results Or you may be thinking you'll never see an end to your suffering, to your pain, of your hurt. Maybe you were frustrated and angry, much like I was at God, because he's not giving this thing that is seemingly good. God simply wants you to trust him with your need, because he is sovereign, and he is good. Maybe you are in a trial, and you have seen God's faithfulness through all of it. You have seen God being good to you. You have personalized the truth that God is sovereign. Let that ring out in your life. Let that be proclaimed in your heart to the people around you that God is good. Remind people of his goodness. Remind people of his faithfulness and his sovereignty in your trials. But friends, for you who are, don't see the good in it, you're not seeing God being faithful, trust him. Trust him. 
Trust him with your circumstances. When someone close to you passes away, maybe a loved one is living in unrepentant sin, remember who God is and what he does. That he is sovereign, that he is good. Pray for that person, love that person. Show them Christ. And we look forward to the judgment day as that is coming. God will both judge the righteous and the wicked. He will judge every thought, every action, every word, every response, every motive. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we do not have to fear. But we can be in awe that he did not spare his own son, yet he spared us. But for you who are not trusting in Jesus for your salvation, it's a reason to fear. It's a reason to fear. Because Jesus hasn't taken your sins upon himself because you have not trusted in him. So trust him. Pray now. And if you have trusted it in, in him as your Lord and Savior, then thank him. Thank him that he has reigned with justice, that he is kind, and in his justice, it was just for him to send Jesus on the behalf of the sins of his children. So when God asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? How will you respond? If you are not in Christ Jesus, you can't, or if our response can't be, well, I did all these good things. I did good things in your name, Lord. You should let me in because of the things I did. Believers, we will stand before God and say, there's nothing. There is nothing that should let me into your kingdom. It is a privilege that I can come into your kingdom because Jesus gives me access. It is only by the blood of Jesus that our sins are washed away and that we can have access to God, this sovereign king. He is just, he is right. Trust him because he is sovereign. So these three reasons then point us to the fourth reason that I said earlier. Oh, all right, fourth, I'll just give you the fourth reason. So these three reasons lay the groundwork and it's for the fourth point, which is, here we go, God is worthy of worship. God is worthy of our worship because of these things. It is a summary. It is a response. Asaph mentions it here. He says, verse 11, you read along with me. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of earth. So to this eternal king, how should people respond to his protection, to his rending, rendering his enemies powerless, to his sovereign rule? How do we ought to respond to him? What else is there to do than to revere him and worship him? That's what Asaph says. Stand in awe of him, praise him. That is what it means to fear him. The king over all heaven and earth is worthy of our worship. We owe him everything. Asaph would have 
when writing this, would have had the Old Testament law in mind. So when he says, make vows to the Lord and pay them. The Old Testament law was very clear that when you made a vow, even if it was rash, like just quick off the spot, like, yes, I'll do that. It makes a promise to do that. The Old Testament law was super clear that you were to fulfill that. You were to do that because that promise that you made, that vow that you made, depended, it was what you did. I need to figure out how to word this well. (laughs) What you did, what you promised, was contingent upon the character of God. And we know that God is faithful and he does what he says always. He always does what he says. He is faithful to do what he says he will do. So that vow, you are representing God. You are representing him and his faithfulness. So if a person once failed to complete their vow, they were profaning the name of the Lord. That's why this is so important. So Asaph says, when you make a vow to the Lord, pay it. Make your vows to the Lord. Let all who are around him bring presents to this king because he ought to be feared. Asaph tells us that the only response to this line of Judah, to the Almighty, to the Lord God, is to worship him. And he summarizes it in verse 12. And it says, He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Asaph reminds us that God is sovereign. God is king. And that he will cut off even the spirit of princes. Throughout history, many kings who have ruled have wanted to be immortal. They thought, or they thought they were immortal because they were so successful. They're like, nothing can stop me. But Asaph reminds us that he will cut off the spirit of princes. They too will return to the dust. Alexander the Great sought after mortality, yet he died at age 32. He conquered over half of the known world in his time, which is, that's an incredible feat. He conquered that and he thought he was immortal, but he died at 32. Kings have sought to be sovereign. Kings have sought to be like God because they're awestruck by his magnificence. They, they ultimately, in our conscience, we know that God exists and we fear him. Yet God still is king of kings and lord of lords. And our pride is the very desire to be like him, to be him to be the king of our own lives, to be the sovereign ruler of our own hearts. It Asaph reminds us that we are to submit and reign to his worship. We are to sacrifice to him. We are to give ourselves entirely to him. I thought I understood this principle of allegiance and sacrificially giving, but it wasn't actually until the beginning of the summer when I was touring Germany that we visited a castle that was, ironically, was modeled or Disney modeled their castle after. And so we're touring around this grand castle. It was gorgeous. It was so, many, so much gold. I've never seen so much gold in my life. <laughs> there was gold everywhere. There was ornate paintings and there was all these wonderful grand things. And the tour guy that we were with was walking around and he looked like he didn't want to be there. <laughs> he, lo- he was not in awe of the 
wonderful magnificence around him. And so we got to this certain gift. We walked through the castle and there's all these gifts here and there. And there's a certain gift that I remember. It was just gorgeous. It was this ornament that would sit on a shelf. It was about this tall, maybe about this wide. And it had all the coats of arms of his followers, his loyal followers of this king that owned the castle. And so there was all these coat of arms decorated uniquely with gems, with gold, with silver. And the really crazy thing is that it was priced at over $300,000. And it was a gift. It was a wonderful, illustrious gift. But it was even more shocking that it was given to him at age 13. (laughs) Would you give your 13-year-old a $300,000 gift? (laughs) No. But his followers thought him worthy of it. Friends, our natural response to this great king is to present ourselves, to present our lives as a living sacrifice to him. As he is our king, as we follow him, he is worthy of our worship. Romans 12 reminds us that, therefore I urge you brothers by the mercies of God to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, key word, reasonable service of worship. It is reasonable. It on, the only response that makes sense to this grand king, to what he's given to us, the mercies of God, the gospel, is to worship him, to present ourselves, our lives, what we want, everything, place it on the altar. It's a living sacrifice. Most sacrifices were dead animals. But we are to actively present ourselves a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him. We are to be holy, set apart from sin, turning away from loving something that God has forbidden and rather seeking after him to be acceptable to God. By trusting Jesus and living every moment to please him, we are offering ourselves up. In our Western mindset, we're always thinking about the next thing to do and the next thing to do. But God wants us in this moment, in this moment, this next decision that I have to make, he wants us to please him. So what decision, what next thing right now do you have to do to please him, to present yourself a living sacrifice? As I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us that we are a, a body. We are his body. We are the temple of the Lord. So we ought not to pollute the temple of God with sins, with our selfishness, with our repugnant, just awful sin. So if you're hiding sexual sin, if you're hiding this, just you're living a life of deceit, if you're living in anger, if you claim that you have the Holy Spirit, that you're heaping up these, these awful, wicked, stinky things, In God's temple, what does that actually show that you're worshiping? Friends, confess our sins to God and he will justly and faithfully forgive you and cleanse you of all that unrighteousness.
God has already had victory through Jesus. So we're guaranteed forgiveness when we go to him, when we repent. So what influences are carry, of the world are carrying you away from Jesus, from loving, from delighting in him? When you spend time on YouTube, are you just watching influencers of the world telling you that this is the way to live? Or in your movies, are they, are they, do they have lewd or lustful things that are just obviously opposed to God? Are you filling your lives with those things? What we entertain ourselves with what the things that we saturate ourselves with, they're all communicating to us. They're shaping the way we think, the way we do things. Friends, Jesus ought to shape our worldview the way we do things, pleasing him. It's not necessarily bad to watch a movie or a show every night of the week or to watch even a show once a week. Those aren't bad things unless it's obviously opposed to God. But how could you spend your time better delighting, better pleasing to Jesus? Or maybe you spend three nights out of the week watching a show. Maybe substitute one of them for watching a sermon with your family. There's many good things that we can fill our lives with, that we can heap our lives with, but is it the best thing? Is it what God wants? Delight yourselves in Jesus. Never get over the salvation that he provides. There's much going on in the world around us today and it is easy to fear just everything that's going on. Everything. We may fear kings and rulers now, but we know from Psalm 76 that we serve a sovereign king who justly reigns over all the earth. And the only response we ought to have is to present ourselves as living sacrifices to worship him and to worship him alone. So worship is a daily battle. Worship not because you want blessing, but because you want to bless the one who is worthy of it. Because he is worthy of blessing, bless him. Bless the name of the Lord. Follow what God wants you to do in this moment to be pleasing to him and not follow what the world wants you to do, celebrities, influencers, to follow what Jesus would want you to do. Look to God when you are lonely, when you are unsatisfied, because he alone can satisfy your weary soul. He alone can understand fully what you are going through. Look to him. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is worthy of our worship. The Lion of Judah defends his people. The Almighty renders his enemies powerless. The Lord reigns with justice over all the earth and the universe for that fact. So my friends, let's worship the Lord together as his church, putting his glory on display for the world to see Let us worship the Lord together. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.